I am Brother Cornell West, and this is Hip Hop Can Save America. Peace and love, everybody. It's your man, Manny Faces. Just wanted to let you know that Hip Hop Can Save America is now available as a live stream show every Monday night, 9 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube. You can find it at hiphopcansaveamerica.com slash watch. Excerpts from that show will be played here on the audio feed, so you'll still get the good interviews that you've been used to. But check out the live stream and check out my free Substack newsletter at mannyfaces.substack.com. That's filled with all kinds of stories of hip-hop innovation, inspiration, and generally hip-hop news that isn't about dumb shit. For everything hip-hop can save America, hiphopcansaveamerica.com. For everything Manny Faces, mannyfaces.com. And if you find value in this work, you can support it. We'd love to have you aboard as a supporter at patreon.com slash mannyfaces. Now let's go. On this episode of Hip Hop Can Save America, Dr. Lauren Kelly teaches teachers how to teach using hip hop. And we'll talk about why it works and some things to watch out for. Plus, info on a brilliant student-led hip hop academic conference coming soon. My name is Manny Faces. Let's go. The thing about hip hop... Uh, today is it's smart it's insightful the, the way that they can communicate uh, a complex message in a very short space is is remarkable and a lot of these kids they're not going to be reading the new york times that's not how they're getting their information so hip hop didn't invent anything, but hip hop reinvented everything. Peace and love, everyone. This is Hip Hop Can Save America, aka the world's smartest hip hop podcast. Here, we examine ways that hip hop music and culture contribute to humanity in innovative and uplifting ways improving lives, livelihoods, and communities across the country in areas including education, health and wellness, politics and activism, business and entrepreneurship, the fine arts, spirituality, and so much more. My name is Manny Faces, the creator, producer, and host of the show. I'm an independent journalist and scholar, content creator, public speaker, podcaster, and founder of the Center for Hip Hop Advocacy. If you like the kind of smart hip-hop stories and discussion we cover on this podcast, you'll love our free newsletter delivering even more of the same. Sign up or just find out more about our work at hiphopadvocacy.org and follow us on Twitter or Instagram at hiphopadvocacy. Now, a lot of our episodes delve into the wide world of hip-hop education. I've seen so many examples of how hip-hop music, culture, spirit, and perspective can lift up our young people in educational settings. So I will definitely continue to sing the praises of hip-hop based education. Recently, however, a journal article caught my eye. It was titled, When Keeping It Real Goes Wrong, Enacting Critical Pedagogies of Hip-Hop in Mainstream Schools. It was written by Don C. Sawyer III of Quinnipiac University and Dr. Lauren Kelly, Assistant Professor in the Urban Social Justice Teacher Education Program at Rutgers University's Graduate School of Education. I've known Dr. Kelly for a minute, and I thought her contribution to the article represents a very important facet of hip-hop-based education. Sometimes we focus so much on the victories, we don't pay enough attention to when keeping it real goes wrong. And if we're truly looking for long-term effective ways to advocate for hip-hop in schools, it's equally important to pay attention to how we can make these interactions the best they can be. 
I wanted to know more and Lauren graciously agreed to come on the show to discuss it in a bit more detail. And we also spoke about the incredible hip hop youth research and activism conference, a young people and student led event that she founded, which will host its next iteration this May. So some more information about that as well. Here it is my talk with Dr. Lauren Kelly. Dr. Kelly, thank you for taking some time and hanging out with me today on this show. Good to see you. Good to hear you. Likewise. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Uh, long time coming, long overdue. I'd like you to just tell uh, me and those listening, sort of, you know, as we all kind of wear many hats uh, in this in this game, uh, how do you consider yourself uh, from a uh, professional standpoint? How do you describe yourself? Primarily as a teacher. So I am currently a teacher educator. I teach students who are in the master's program at Rutgers Graduate School of Education. So I teach urban education and English education um, through the lens of social justice and teaching for equity and inclusivity. Um, and I have a background as an English teacher. I taught for 10 years in New York, ninth and 10th and 12th and sometimes 11th grade English. And it's funny, I was also, um, I was at an event this past weekend, I was focusing on black music and sort of the history of it. And I was asked to sort of participate in this event um, as someone who is in the industry. Not a moment where I was like, is that a thing that happened? Um, and I forgot <laughs> my, like, my prior life um, you know, as a DJ and, and um, as someone who had a radio show and was a promoter for Def Jam. And it just brought back all these memories of my pre-teaching life in the music industry. But yes, as a teacher educator is my primary hat right now. That's the primary hat. But again, in your DNA is a whole lot of music and a, and a whole lot of hip hop. Yeah. How does hip hop actually play into your work as a teacher educator, you know, in general, holistically, and then specifically? Hip hop is, again, sort of in the DNA of, of my work as a teacher. Um, when I first started teaching, I was not introduced at that point to hip hop as an approach to teaching and learning. I didn't know that this was a field of study, that this was um, a form of pedagogy. It was just really natural for me to play music in my classroom uh, because I love music and specifically hip hop. And I was teaching in an urban environment where most of my students were also engaged in hip hop in some way. And also as I was beginning my career, I was a lot younger than I am now. And so I was closer in age to my students. And so what I was listening to was in a lot of ways what they were listening to um, or what their older siblings, sometimes parents were listening to. And so mm -hmm. we just really connected based on the music we were listening to. And I found that was a really great starting place to teach from. Um, so that's really how it started was just sort of it being an organic part of the classroom. And then over time, especially as I was getting more distant from what young people were listening to at that point in time, um, right. I became increasingly interested in how young people were engaged with hip hop, specifically lyrically. What were they understanding from the lyrics? Um, what messages were they getting? How were they interpreting or critically, if at all, engaging with those messages? And so I started to really be more deliberate in how I brought music into the classroom for critical literacy development. Um, so having explicit conversations about what are you hearing? What do these words mean to you? How are you understanding mm. it? Um, and I found for me that became really powerful, not only connecting students to classroom content, um, but also in developing critical consciousness in the classroom through popular media. And especially I found mm. when I was teaching, um, when I started teaching in the suburbs and I brought in music in sort of more racially diverse classrooms, they were really powerful conversations we were having around race, around class, around gender, around privilege, that were sort of less, folks weren't necessarily coming from the same perspective because it was such a diverse classroom. So I found it was even more critical to have those types of conversations in those spaces where they weren't really having those conversations outside of it. Interesting. And and the music was sort of like that bridge in some, or the music and the culture or the pop culture parts of hip hop, you know, was kind of a bridge you found? It is. And I think it's for two reasons. One is that 
to walk into a, again, a racially diverse classroom space, especially in high school and say, hey, everyone, we're going to talk about race and class and equity today. Um, it's a very right. different intro, right? Folks are like, am I in the same, am I in the right place? I think I have, <laughs> right. I think I have a cafeteria. Um, so I think when you start, not that it wasn't deceptive, um, but I think when you're starting with the music they're already engaging with, it's a different type of entrance into that conversation because ultimately you cannot talk about hip hop and not talk about race. It's really hard to do. <laughs> so I did right. sort of extract one from the other. So it became a much more sort of organic link to having those really critical conversations. And I also found, um, you know, a lot of the students that I taught came from a lot of, uh, at least some of them came from a lot of economic privilege. Um, and so they had, you know, like front row seats to an ASAP Rocky, you know, intimate conversation and, and spaces that I wasn't even in, right? Um, and so I thought right, it was right. even more important to engage in critical conversations about the music that they were consuming, because in a lot of these spaces, they're consuming it without thinking about their privilege, right? What does it mean to be able to score these $500 seats to a concert? And right, so I found right. it was really important that we were able to sort of enter into those conversations because they're consuming this music, right? Yeah. And and we're going to, I'm letting it be known now, we're going to tease your conference that you're a part of that in, that uh, that actually puts students and young people in the driver's seat of what a uh, an academic conference should look like. So it's not just, you know, you're giving and you're taking from young people. You're you're using, you know, these methods to, you know, educate them or to or engage in these conversations, but you're also learning from them and, and allowing them to kind of put themselves front and center. And that also brings up, I think, before I get into the, the, the paper that you recently co-authored, I, I, I want to say, so when you saw some of these things in practice, you were doing them, you were implementing them, you were discovering them on your own, there was a burgeoning field of sort of hip hop based education, hip hop pedagogy. When did like those two lanes cross paths? When did you realize that you're you're not alone, that this is a thing? That's such a great question. I think um, so. I while I was teaching um, after I think after my fifth year of teaching, I started my doctoral program at Teachers College uh, at Columbia University, um, and I'm super fortunate that I was mentored and really trained by some of the foundational scholars in the field of hip-hop education. So I had classes with uh, Dr. Mark Lamont Hill, um, who wrote the book, These Rhymes in Classroom Life, which is one of, sort of the seminal texts in what does it look like to teach hip-hop in classroom spaces, and in particular to teach, he was sort of one of the first people who um, documented having taught an entire class devoted to looking at hip-hop as literature. Um, so whereas other folks had sort of units, uh, right, they're able to have a week or maybe a month, um, or summer program, right. or an after-school program, he had an entire course where you're getting a grade in really reading hip hop um, and discussing it. And so mm. that was really sort of significant to me because that was the first time I realized that one could do this and have it be sanctioned inside of a school space. Um, I was also taught by Ernest Morell, who's one of the first people to write about teaching hip hop in an English classroom. And so that was my introduction to the scholarly, but this was a field and it was the scholarly side of it. And during that time, I also, I met Dr. Jamila Liscott who was at Teachers College while I was there. And she was um, one of the leaders in Urban Word, which is a New York City-based youth organization around poetry and hip hop and activism. So through meeting her and getting connected to her work is when I started to attend Urban Word events, um, like the Creative Education Conference that they've been running in conjunction with NYU for a few years. And that was in my second year of being at Teachers College. And that was when I really understood there was an entire community around this work and that it wasn't just professors and you know grad students that this was an intergenerational community right, so some right, of the first right. people to welcome me into that space was i remember um gabe ramirez who is now um i believe a college student but at the time he was a sophomore in high school 
And I was learning so much from him and from his poetry and how he engaged in the space. And that to me was just transformative in terms of how I understand teaching and learning and community. And so ever since then, that's been, I ride real hard for Urban Word and that entire community. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We had uh, Mikel Amin on the show, uh, Hired Gun. So yeah, so we've had some Urban Word uh, Mm -hmm. sprinkled throughout. And again, like as you now teach, you're teaching teachers. So how, how did those experiences shape what you actually do today? I find, um, I, it, you know, they say the more you know, or the more you learn, so the less you know. Um, yeah, yeah. And so <laughs> I find myself even less of an expert every day as I'm learning more from my students, mm. um, especially from youth communities. And so what I really try to do in the field of teaching teachers is redirect their focus not redirect, they should still be reading and obviously learning from researchers and, and scholars and people who have experience in the classroom. Um, but I really try to focus on who's in the classroom that they should be learning from. Um, not only their mm. cooperating teacher and the student teachers, not only their colleagues, but also the students in the room. And really, and especially I think about me when I was a new teacher and a lot of the essays that I read when teachers are, um, or pre-service teachers are applying to the program to get the certification is a lot of like seeing young people as empty vessels that we're filling up with all of our knowledge, right? From a very sort of right. well-intentioned space. Um, but there's the idea that we are learned, right? We've gone through things, we've gotten the degrees, um, and we are now going to go back into schools and offer up right. our knowledge to students. Right. And because it worked for us, right? We have this notion of school works for me, so I'm going to do the same thing that people did for me to young people sure. um, without really recognizing them as not empty vessels, right? That they've so much knowledge, so much cultural production, especially now that they can really producing things all the time and putting them out on the internet. And so really looking to our students to um, learn from them and make sure their knowledge is honored and valued in the classroom. Interesting. And that does segue a little bit nicely into the paper that you recently co-authored with uh, Professor Sawyer from Quinnipiac. It's when keeping it real goes wrong, enacting critical pedagogies of hip hop in mainstream schools. And what I really enjoyed about this was sort of a counter to what often happens. Now, we, I've had I do a lot of hip hop based education talk and interviews on this show. Some other th- I, I don't it's not just education, but that's, you know, we, we've covered it a lot. And proponents of hip hop based education are often quick to offer what I think the paper calls success narratives. You know, we always want to kind of we're proponents of it where we want to talk about how great it works and, and all the successes that we've seen. And there are. Plenty of, you know, there's receipts. We, we know that it works in a lot of instances and we can point to that and we want to amplify that. But what the paper here does, uh, you and your co-author noted that it's also important to look at when the results may not be as effective or as positive as you thought it might be or, or, or what you hoped it might be. So like real quick, uh, and we've covered a little bit of it, but I think from a perspective of if it was someone who's, you know, says hip hop and education, like what's that supposed to look like and what is it supposed to achieve? Part of it is what you just talked about, you know, kind of take learning from students from their cultural perspectives or the ways they see things, you know, quick elevator pitch on hip hop education, what it's supposed to achieve. And then we could talk a little bit about some of the things that you saw where it didn't quite work according to plan. Yeah, I love that you framed it that way, because I think in terms of what is it supposed to do, I think part of what we challenge there is that we never really know. I mean, hip hop itself, no one knew in 1985 that it was going to look the way it looks right now, right? Or even 10 years ago that everyone would be sing rapping um, and that we'd like it. And so I think part a part of the challenge and also the beauty of hip hop based education is we don't really know the outcome. And a part of what we are attempting to do in that particular piece is in some ways being okay with that, right? Um, and reframing hip hop education as not sort of do right. these steps, right? Follow the steps. Right. do what this person did, do what I did, right. um, and it's going to be great because it is 
so context specific, depending on who is in the room, geographically, linguistically, culturally, racially, economically. Which is hip hop. Like hip hop exactly. is the same way. It's like, you know, people always complain. I say to people, uh, you know, people, that's not real hip hop or that's not the right kind of. I'm like, you're really attempting to put something in a box that is by its nature not supposed to be in a box. So it's very difficult to say that these are the rules of the game in hip hop generally and even specifically in its application in educational spaces. And I think that's what young people, especially young people who are creators of hip hop right now, are showing us every day. Right. Because we could say, well, you need to have this many bars. You need to have this many verses. You need to have like syntax and onomatopoeia. And they're like, nope. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. 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 Um, and I think Drake in some ways really sort of um, is one of the proponents of, of defying that. Right. He's like, yeah, I'm going to sing my hooks and rap my verses. Right. And that's going to be fine. I don't need to get someone else on this. Right. Or I remember when he came out with, um, is it going home, coming home? Mm-hmm. Right. That song. If you look at it, I think it has one verse. But you don't notice that because it's just so captivating, right? And so right, I think right, right. we're constantly learning from young folks that there are no rules to this, right? It's about what feels right in that moment, what hits in that moment, and is so context specific. And I think there's a danger in sort of saying, follow these 10 steps to hip hop education, mm. and your class is going to be the class, and everything's going to be great. And what we challenge in that piece is what happens when you do that, and you're like, oh, everyone didn't love this class. Everyone didn't get eight, right? Someone was, right. I think Mark Lamont Hill's book also gets at this where he was like, and then someone disappeared for two weeks, right? right? Because something was triggering in the conversation we had. And so I think we need to be really honest about what this looks like in classrooms, um, because especially for new teachers um, and for pre-service teachers, when they try these things that we say work and it doesn't work, then they feel like it's on them. Like somehow they failed mm. or they're not the right person or what did I mm, do wrong? Right. So we need to also be really honest about these moments where it didn't necessarily work out the way we thought it would um, because right. it's a learning experience for everyone and it also lets us know like this is it's okay we're trying this out right no one really knows what this will look like because hip-hop is shaping it's i mean it's shaped every day and it's new every day and similarly our pedagogy has to be new every day that's interesting yeah so it's definitely um an organic uh, evolving process now here's here's what i liked about your critique of i guess it called critique but it was also it was introspective because it was your experiences it's actually your I don't say failures. It wasn't a failure, but it was it, when things didn't work out well, you were saying to yourself, maybe it's me. Is it not me? Maybe you were had to examine this yourself. So it's very introspective. And of course, it's very caring. It's coming from a caring perspective. There's a lot of people that you could probably find that show or would attempt to show why hip hop based education is garbage. It's a stupid idea. It's never going to work. It doesn't work. It does, you know, there's some, I'm sure there's some people, they're all wrong, of course. Um, but, you know, but it's from a, a point of trying to knock down this, uh, this, practice or these methods. Yours is saying, no, 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 it, it works. Here's why it should work. Here's where it could be improved. Here's what we were trying to accomplish. And here's some things that are blocking it. And it has to do, I think, in some ways with the overarching, what institution it's being done in, uh, what the setup is. Doesn't matter how much you're trying to change the game. If the game is sort of, I don't want to say rigged, but you know, if there's already kind of a system that prevents that from breaking through and accomplishing the goals you're trying to accomplish, that's going to be a problem. What did you try to do? What was your class that you wrote about in this piece? Just as a recap for people who haven't read it. Uh, you know, what was your class about and, and what were you trying to do? And then what kind of, a couple of examples of, from the paper that, you know, where it didn't quite gel? such a great question. What was I trying to do? It was called Hip Hop Literature and Culture. It was a high school English elective. And it was the first time I proposed the class and I had a director who was just, she's a critical scholar and was incredibly open, you know, to 
adding to the curriculum in ways that were culturally responsive to students and not sort of just sitting in the canon. It was offered to 10th, 11th, and 12th grade students. Ultimately, it was almost all seniors. And there's so much, I mean, and we could talk forever about why. There's a lot of why that class had the makeup that it had. And a lot of that is that this was in a school where electives were really pushed towards like business and AP, right? And so students were really taking electives um, that would look good on their college application, that their parents supported, that would get them more sort of college credit AP scores. And so Mm. to find students who are willing to use their like precious, you know, they have nine periods a day, so many core classes to use that precious elective time to take something that right. was not necessarily going to look good on their college resume, their application, if right. the parents weren't supporting. And so I ended up with a lot of students um, that were either super hip hop heads or they needed A credit. They didn't need to be AP, they just needed something to be sure they graduated. <laughs> so it was like right. a really interesting group of students, um, all 11th and 12th grade, mostly 12th grade. There were two girls in that class, which made for really interesting dynamics. One of them is someone who ends up in first wave at you know, U of Wisconsin, was a spoken word poet, right? So she sort of came in as an activist, as in some ways a, crit- a young critical scholar. And so it made for a really interesting conversation because you had some of the heads in the class that were like, I just want to play my favorite songs and talk about why they're my favorite. But they didn't really want to engage with, you know, what does it mean as a white man to love a song whose chorus says like, nigga, 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 and to say it out loud, like to be reciting these verses in class. And and they didn't want to engage with that, right? So you had a lot of the heads that were like, I don't want to like really talk about the songs. I want to like right. just talk about the songs. Um, and then the girls <laughs> in the class right. were like, oh, why are you not okay with me playing Lil' Kim? Why are you not okay with Adelia Banks? Why? And, you know, so really critiquing and challenging how some of the young men in the class had a very mono <laughs> um, or sort of singular view of hip hop, right? And who was great and who they would play and who they would listen to and things that fell outside of that. They were like, that's weird. That's uncomfortable. That's not all right. And so it became like a like barbershop talk, like top five dead or alive. Yes. And we're just going to have that argument. You know, it right. became such an interesting space <laughs> for it. So ultimately, I we sort of had a circuitous route to doing the thing that I wanted to do. So I came into it really wanting to unpack um, structural inequity, right? And talking about race and class and gender and power and sexuality through the lens of hip hop tech. Um, and it really started out with everyone sharing their favorite songs talking about how they connected to hip-hop, critiquing and challenging each other. And then sort of by the end of class, we came back to that through a very sort of roundabout way. Uh, we ultimately were critiquing things like race and class and gender and power. Um, but it wasn't in the way that I intended. It wasn't through the text that I brought in, the curriculum I wrote. I scrapped most of it. Um, and it really <laughs> became the students bringing in the songs that they gravitated towards. And then us asking each other questions to get to sort of the root of what we were gravitating towards. So ultimately, we did the things that I was hoping we'd do, and it was really me learning from the students throughout. And I particularly remember, uh, do you remember 2 Chainz's birthday song? Yeah, I'm going to play it on my birthday this week. That, uh, <laughs> um, that really became like our our primary text in this class, surprisingly. I thought it was going to be just Chainz's that won't stop. Right, um, right. Text is text, though. <laughs> They were like, this is mad reading. <laughs> so in the end, what I found is that, like I said, it wasn't through the mechanisms I thought it would. Um, and I remember one of the students said, we have to watch you know, this video. And I didn't realize I'd heard the song before. I was like, I never heard mm. this birthday song. Sure, let's play. And then once it started, I was like, oh, this song. What we're... Okay. Um, right. And we ended up returning to this song. We watched the video on mute. Um, we listened to the song multiple times. There are times we can only get through certain chunks of it because we just have these conversations. And something that was really, really important for me um, as an educator is there was a moment where we watched the song and um, and I just asked them, I was like, all right, I know I'm a little bit uncomfortable about the song and the chorus. And especially when you watch the video, it is 
so it's a lot of women's bodies um and like faceless like a lot of times you don't see their heads you don't see their face there's a cake that's in the shape of a woman's body and so of course i was very judgmental and i was like why do you like this and they're like well we you know we relate to it and i said what exactly are you relating to like does right. it reflect your life is this what your life looks like right um and they're like no 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 but it's what i want to have so again, so I just sort of kept posing questions, and I was like, "What exactly? Like, do you want your birthday to look like this? Like, this is what you aspire to?" And they're like, right. "No, we don't really want this, this, but we want the power to have this if this is what we wanted." And so, so through these questions, I'm understanding that what I think they're honoring and validating and gravitating towards, like the misogyny, the objectification, that I think that they are loving, is not it's the power. And so, while that power seems to be manifesting as things like misogyny, objectification, it's really about young people needing that in their lives. So that, to me, was sort of like the turning point in the class. I think that'd be valuable for a lot of people who are who have a very surface level or cursory knowledge of hip-hop in general, just, you know, that look in and they see those things. They see massage, you know, it glorifies violence. And no, I think the violence or the, you know, the the powerful drug dealers or the powerful people are like the powerful mafia bosses. Or the pa- It's the power. It's the, you know, do you respect me or fear me? It's that that dynamic. And of course, who feels more powerless than young people? especially young, you know, minorities or oppressed communities or marginalized communities, the powerless of them all, you know, in, in some way psychologically. So wouldn't that be the pinnacle of, of what they want out of life? Not necessarily a birthday cake shaped like a woman's posterior, you know, I'll have to cancel my order. <laughs> Listen, if it's what you want, it's what you want. <laughs> <laughs> I have the power to do this, but that's an it's really interesting angle to to just because sometimes you know I like to speak to a lot of people who have that very surface level of hip hop and say, well, why do they like this? And you have to go through this whole long thing. And what you just said is very insightful that it's that power that they they uh, they really crave and, and look at. And so the, I like how you freestyled your entire course because you basically had to flip it on the go, <laughs> but you got to an interesting place. What yeah. were some of the specific? There was a couple. There was like two things that stuck out to me that you also said were made it difficult to get to the place where you wanted to, or maybe there's some things that are generally, that generally get in the way of bringing hip hop into the classroom as a way to connect to students. One of the things you mentioned in here, um, I think it was in your section of this was the physical space. And the other thing was the power dynamic. How do those things in general, and maybe even specifically to, to your case, but how do those things make it more difficult to get the advantages that hip hop based education can, can bring? Absolutely. I, I mean, really what gets in the way is school, right? Right. Like the sort of the structure of school itself, right? The structures of power, as you mentioned. And something I really was thinking about a lot, by the time we got to the end of the piece, we were saying, wow, is this, is this hopeless? Are we just saying this is not going to work? We we're trying to figure out what is the, is there hope here? Um, and what we really came to is that it, there is so much hope. Um, and part of the issue is that, as I mentioned, the students in this class were in 11th and 12th grade, right? So they'd already been through a decade and change of schooling that told them that they don't have power, that they weren't the center of schooling and learning, right? That they were sort of, again, like just the recipients of knowledge um, and they were being assessed on how much can they regurgitate that knowledge. And so by the time they're now 17, 18 years old, they understand that that's what school is and looks like. And so what I was finding is I was entering with this very sort of, you know, social justice oriented, learn from the youth, this very democratic idea of education where all I had to do was introduce this new curriculum, ask them to, you know, forget these roads, let's move our desks into circles and we can all see each other. And the teacher is not sort of the center of power and, and at the front of the classroom. 
but they had already been socialized for so many years to do school in a very particular way that at a certain point, it just becomes easier, right? I think we see this in other areas that aren't just in school, but at a certain point in time, it's just easier to do the thing that you know how to do, where you can sit back and just receive. Once you're asked to now come up with ideas, to be a leader, right? It's more work. It is much more work to build curriculum as a student than to just receive the syllabus and keep it moving. And having never been in that position before. Having never, it was the first time. It was the very first time. Mm. Um, and so really the issue was, it wasn't them sort of not wanting to take hold of that power. It was that it felt really new. It came out of nowhere. You know, we only had one semester. So by the time they started to really learn how to wield it, we were done, right? We were in our last few weeks. And so what we realized is that this type of schooling has to start way earlier from elementary school students. And it's happening. I think it is something that is happening. It's just going to take a few years for us to see what that looks like, you know, in high school. So those who are already starting to teach from that space in elementary school. But right. yes, it's like, I was going to say, there's radical teaching, but it's also radical learning. Absolutely. And it needs to be, it's always institutionalized and socialized, right? It needs to be something you're accustomed to doing. Right. So by the time you're in high school, you're like, I am ready to go. Like, here it is. Here's what we need to learn. Here's how we need to learn it. Just get me the resources, right? And that's unfortunately not what we had in that structure because they were like, what? You want me to what? Mm. No, no, just tell me. Literally was saying, tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. I do not. Like, this is going to take forever. I don't want to do the mental work of it. Just tell me what to do. It's easier So, Is that something that's done? I don't know if this happens anywhere else. Like, you know, kind of the hip-hop based or the culturally, forget hip-hop specifically, but more generally, more broad from my understanding, you know, culturally relevant and culturally responsive. I don't know if there is, but for instance, when they say that civics uh, education has been removed from from high schools, middle schools, we don't get a lot of civics training. What struck me once was that the Parkland shooting, in Florida, the young people who responded kind of so well to that, you know, if, if well is the right word, but, you know, went on TV and were protesting and organized the March for Our Lives and did all these things. And everyone's like, wow, these students are so educated and they're so articulate and they're so motivated. It turns out that Florida, of all places, they voted in that schools, certain schools have to have civics training. And so it's like, well, no, they're not. I mean, yes, not to take anything away from them, but part of that may be because they had that educational focus at a younger age. And so when they were older and something, and it, they were ready for, like you said, they're ready for it. Absolutely. And it's, it's, I think it really, again, depends on the context and it depends on the place. Um, because we know there are plenty of school systems outside of the U.S. where it's even more rigid, right? Um, and students are accustomed to going through their entire day and not saying a word, <laughs> right? Um, I remember when I was teaching in Japan, when I would ask my students to be in conversation, they're like, what? Uh, right. Tell me the thing, I know the answer, and I could get 100. Like, what is all this? interaction that we're asked to do um (laughs) i think it really does depend on the context and i do think that even the idea of cultural responsiveness and cultural relevance is so dependent on what is the culture right and who's in the culture and what what does feel um organic to this space right and even another example from japan i remember watching breakdancers in the subway way after we had breakdancers in the subway right i mean this was like early 2000s and it just looked so there's something about the ways in which i saw them moving that just seemed very very structured, right? They're like, this is how one break dances, right? And I felt like that some of the the soul of it wasn't there, right? It wasn't necessarily organic. It was this external thing that they had learned. And even the ways in which a lot of, um, there's been a, a reappropriation of like Chola culture, right? And like LA um, Latinx culture, again, a lot of, you know, in Japan, a lot of subcultures in Asian countries um, where you see them taking sort of the aesthetics of it, but not being as connected to the heart of it. And so I think, mm. again, we look at, 
hip hop is a culturally relevant response to education, it is so context specific, right? It's not just going to work anywhere, even if it is popular and cool or something that being connected to like the heart and soul and, and community of it, that is so much a part of that work. I think that's what I really enjoyed about what this paper meant. You're coming from the culture and you predicted things would happen and you had to kind of flip it and remix and you were able to do that and still get the desired results. I think because of your authenticity and you were able to kind of work on the move. But a lot of times you see people who are not necessarily of hip hop culture, uh, but they're attempting to incorporate it. And that's great. I think we welcome that. But I think what we what you want to protect against or you want to warn against is educators stepping into this space and doing some of the wrong things that really erase some of the potential of this, of these ideas. That's a worthy concern. It is. You know, so I was warned even before I taught the class. Um, you know, Dave Stovall, who's in Chicago, had taught, you know, hip hop based class. Uh, Brian Bain had taught hip hop based classes and they both had warned me to not do that thing. Right. They're like, you will never be the expert on this thing more so than your students. Right. And so I kind of came in, I still sort of had some missteps there, but I came in kind of knowing that I would really need to not act like I knew all the things about hip hop. I think unless you're teaching a hip hop history class, that's sort of the only context in which I think it is acceptable to sort of be the expert, right? And say like, I'm going to teach you about this thing. Right. And even then, that, and even then you better make sure that you're telling all different sides of those stories because even exactly. the facts aren't all the facts. There's different, never, there's, there's, different, there's always, alternative facts in hip hop history. <laughs> no one agrees on what was the first recorded even rap song, right? There's always right. different. So I think what I had to learn, and what I think is really important for educators to learn, is that what the expertise we're bringing in is in facilitation, right? In teaching and facilitation. Um, how do I cultivate a classroom environment that is safe, that is supportive, where everyone's voice is heard? How do I introduce critical perspective, right? When they're not sort of already sitting in the room. Um, how do I choose maybe some of the supplemental texts that can help us develop critical theories and perspectives to so bring in some like Trisha Rose or Aline Richardson, Brittany Cooper. But outside of that, I think we need to step away from bringing in the hip hop knowledge, right? Bringing in the text, the songs, the language, and really focus on facilitation, right? And letting that curriculum development really be sort of help them with it, right? Not take go home and develop a curriculum, um, right. but really be facilitators in those spaces and not come in with, I know the good hip hop. This is what you all should be listening to. This is who has value. This is important. We're going to listen to most guests and J. Cole um, and not the baby because what does he have to offer? Like, I think we need to be really careful about that's not our expertise. Our expertise is how do you teach? How do you facilitate? How do you cultivate theories and perspectives in the classroom? And I think once we can enter from that framework, we're good. So that no matter what they choose, you could find a way to work it into the mix. Listen, our primary text was two right. chains. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I thank you uh, for all of this uh, fascinating insight. Like I said, when you speak to a lot of uh, people doing hip hop education, certainly when I talk about it as an advocate or a you know, proponent or you know, just a fan of people like you, I'm always talking about the successes. I want to convince people. I want to let people know that it's a thing that is viable. I like, I love the debates with people who don't even have any clue, you know, but it's also just like with anything else you want to, you know, you don't want to be blinded by the shiny objects or the, you know, um, the celebrity idea of being a part of this great movement without realizing that there's, that it's not perfect. It is new. It is evolving. Part of our job to make it work right is to make sure that we're being critical even of ourselves. And so I think that's super valuable. So that's why I was impressed by this and wanted to share it with people who do follow 
what we talk about here. And of course, uh, even more importantly, or I don't know, more importantly, as important is what's coming up next for you. Uh, one of the things that's coming up next for you, of course, um, the conference, the hip hop, uh, what is it now? The official title is the Hip Hop Youth Research and Activism Conference. Is that right? That is it. All right. That is coming up soon. I attended last year, by the way. I am absolutely in awe of this event. Uh, like I said at the beginning, it's very student-driven and student-led. You tell the people what it's all about. Absolutely. So this conference is, um, it's, again, really transformative space. Uh, what I'm mo most amazed by is how it is led by a group of young people um, who, before becoming collaborators on this conference, didn't really know each other, right? So they're coming from uh, Boston, New York, Connecticut, New Jersey. Um, Nashville, I know maybe states and cities, um, these are young folks who met through doing this work together. And so they're already coming in with different geographic perspectives, social and cultural perspectives, academic perspectives. They all have different talents in different areas, uh, but they're coming together based on this idea of advocacy for marginalized communities, working for social justice, not only through teaching and learning, but also through art and through community building. Um, this is a space that is intergenerational. Uh, teachers are welcome. Community advocates are welcome, activists, high school students, college students, artists, adult allies. It's a space where young people are learning from and with each other. And so high school and college students are leading workshops. Um, they propose workshops. Uh, February 15th is our deadline for proposals. Um, and folks are proposing not only workshops to lead, but also presentations. They're submitting artwork. Um, so again, it really is sort of a very diverse space in terms of perspectives and talents and interest, and again, all rooted in working for social justice, working for equity in education, in society, um, of course, globally. And it is a space that is both digital in that, you know, they're working social media, the community, these young people have built sort of across, again, it is across the entire nation, um, working with young people to do this work together, to learn from each other. Um, and it's also physical because we are meeting on May 19th, 2020 at Rutgers University, across the street from the Graduate School of Education, to be in community together, to learn from each other, to engage with performance and also discussion in the interest of working towards a better world. So thank you. I mean, those are great goals. Uh, I've, like I said, I've seen it. I know that this is where we get, you know, real excited because we say, no, hip hop can do, a, can do all these things. Like there's ways that hip hop can improve humanity in, in dozens of ways. Activism, uh, bringing people together from disparate backgrounds and having them work together for common good. Like, there's nothing better. I don't know if there's anything better than hip hop uh, at doing that. What were a couple of the kind of things that happened last year that people can expect, you know, session wise? Or do you have anything that's set yet? Or is it all just kind of still open for proposals? It is. So, the focus, the theme for last year was art as a form of activism. The theme for this year is how we build digital communities for teaching and learning, healing and for advocacy. Um, and so we're asking for proposals that really lean into what it means to be in this digital age that we're in, in terms of music creation, production, sharing, engagement, um, how are we learning from and with each other and sharing this information through digital spaces and using that um, to heal ourselves, right? We're at a time where, as we know, statistically, the more we engage with digital media, the more depressed people are, the more they so we're dealing with a lot of social anxieties. And so how are we using it as a healthy space to support each other, to sort of collectively develop um, love for ourselves and each other? And so we are asking for performances. Um, last year, we had some incredible, we had a keynote performance from Dr. Wu, um, who is a b-boy and also choreographer and a dance educator. And we had a keynote from Crystal Valentine, who is a youth advocate and activist and uh, poet and current student at NYU. 
And so this year we're also going to have our keynote performance and uh, keynote talk as well as invited performers and artwork, which we didn't do last year. And so we're going to have some art galleries. Oh, nice. Um, that again, look at hip hop as a space for healing and activism. And of course, youth workshops um, that are really engaging with identities, right? Racial identities, cultural identities, hip hop identities, and using that again as a form of advocacy and activism. I think that's great. And I think that's, I mean, that ties in everything we've talked about today, that the youth are leading these you know, these moments, talk about digital spaces. And I talk often about these things and, you know, and how hip hop has changed, you know, has played such a part in changing the music industry, literally flipping the music industry on its head, um, has changed social media. You know, the fact that there's a black Twitter, you know, on top of Twitter, you know, lets you know that there's, you know, that, that young people from these communities that are, uh, you know, have these, um, sort of sensibilities, are actually changing the game from under us. And a lot of times legacy, you know, institutions or legacy companies or legacy mindsets are left scrambling to try to catch up when they should be just welcoming it or opening their arms to, to the young people who are changing the game. We see it with the climate, the, uh, the, the climate change movement and a lot of other ways that, you know, young people are um, really setting the, the bar in a different way these days. So it's, it's a great topic. I think a great theme uh, to capitalize on that. Yeah. Can I uh, give my shout outs? Are we there? Yeah, let's do it. Hashtag hip hop ed, uh, which is, you know, every Tuesday night, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, the Twitter chat that's focused on hip hop based education. I also want to shout out, I see your shirt, EO Dub. Um, <laughs> yes. And of course, the uh, the AERA hip hop thing that I co-organized with Darren Graves, who's in Boston, um, and HHYRA. And thank you so much for having me on. That's it. I'll link... I'll link to all these things. It's my absolute pleasure to uh, have you on. It's my absolute pleasure and privilege to know you and to have been, you know, uh, there and, and a part of it, a uh, part of the conference last year. I'll definitely be there to support. I'll be spreading the love and uh, we'll keep on, uh, you know, doing what we do. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. All right, there you have it. My talk with Dr. Lauren Lee Kelly of the Rutgers Graduate School of Education. For more information on the upcoming Hip Hop Youth Research and Activism Conference, be sure to visit sites.google.com slash view slash H-H-Y-R-A conference or Google Hip Hop Youth Research and Activism Conference. We'll also link to it on our site at hiphopcansaveamerica.com. Now, speaking of Hip Hop Can Save America, we're brought to you by the Center for Hip Hop Advocacy, a nonprofit dedicated to preserving, protecting, and promoting the ability of hip hop music, culture, and spirit to improve humanity, fight injustice, innovate industries, and save lives. If you have a product, service, or story, you want to get out to a rapidly growing audience of people that, just like you, enjoy smart discussion about hip hop culture, you can sponsor this podcast. We also accept tax-deductible donations to help make these podcasts and our other work possible. Visit hiphopadvocacy.org to learn more, to contact us, or to contribute. Hip Hop Can Save America is produced and edited by me through the award-winning podcast and audio journalism production studio, Many Faces Media, producers of acclaimed social justice journalism meets music podcast, Newsbeat, as well as several other shows from across the worlds of business, marketing, culture, and more. Visit us at www.mannyfacesmedia.com. And once again, I'm Manny Faces. Follow me on Twitter at Manny Faces or Instagram at Manny Faces NY. I'll be back soon with more episodes of Hip Hop Can Save America, a.k.a. the world's smartest hip hop podcast. Until then, peace.
Once again, thanks for listening to another episode of Hip Hop Can Save America, a.k.a. the world's most important hip hop podcast. My name is Manny Faces. You can find out more about the show at hiphopcansaveamerica.com. You can watch the show now as a live stream on YouTube, hiphopcansaveamerica.com slash watch. Check back for all the replays as well. The interviews from the live stream will be brought here onto the audio feed, so you always get the best of the live stream. You can also check out our Substack newsletter. It's free at mannyfaces.substack.com. Filled with stories of hip-hop innovation, inspiration, and in general, hip-hop news that isn't about dumb shit. <laughs> Eternal shouts to our consulting producer, Summer McCoy. Be sure to check out her dope initiatives, Hip-Hop Hacks, and the Mixtape Museum. We'll be back soon with another dope episode, but check us out on the live stream as well. Mondays, 9 p.m. Eastern, hiphopcansaveamerica.com slash watch. Until next time, it's Many Faces wishing peace and love to you and yours.